Today I want to preach a message entitled, How the Enemy Seeks to Disarm You. How the Enemy Seeks to Disarm You. The Bible lets us know this, and I'm going to read this verse of Scripture. You don't need to turn there, but I want to just read out of the New Testament what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. It says this, for we are not unaware of his, that is Satan's or the devil's schemes. We're not unaware of it. Today, my point is simply to help you to be aware of what the devil's schemes are. What it is that he will try to do to disarm you. Do you know that you have a great weapon against the enemy? In fact, the Bible lets us know in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand in that evil day and against the enemy. And you have, the Bible says, one of the offensive weapons that we have is the word of God. The Bible says that the word is a sword. And he says, you've been given the word of the Lord, and that is the sword of the spirit, the word of God will help you but you have armor and you have weaponry i my the imagery that immediately comes to my mind is from the sports world uh, as most of you know i i have had uh, you know a background in baseball i grew up you know that i've talked about baseball from time to time and i was a catcher growing up from little league all the way up through into high school and a catcher has to have special equipment Because if that catcher does not have special equipment, that catcher is a dead man. And so, you know, I I started about 10 years old. My oldest brother was a catcher, and I, you know, I saw him, and I thought that was just the coolest thing. You're part of the action all the time. You know, baseball can be a little boring from time to time if you're standing there in the outfield, and you're just kind of standing there waiting for the pitcher to pitch and somebody to hit the ball to you. But the pitcher and the catcher have the most action. And I said, I want to be in where the action is. So I, I started catching. But I remember one time there was a, there was a uh, uh, the padding that goes along the, the face mask that a catcher wears. The padding was worn away, and it was gone on my face mask. So essentially, I had very little padding on this metal, steel kind of protector on my face. And somebody swung at a baseball, and it foul-tipped, and came back and knocked me right in the chin. And it was baseball against metal against bone. And boy, did that ring my bell. It hurt like nobody's business. And I said to my coach, I think it's time for us to get some new padding on this. It hurt. But there was special protection that I had. See, the Christian not only has protection, armor, but you have weaponry. You have the word of the Lord. God has told us how it is that we are to fight the enemy. We know that Peter tells us that the enemy goes around, the devil goes around like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He does his best to get you and I to be afraid. He does his best to disarm us. And one of the ways that he can do there is some of the ways that he can do that we're going to talk about today in this message. The other analogy that sort of goes to the sports world, at least 
in light of what it is that I want to talk about is not only the idea of protection, but it is the idea of coming against you. And that is the blitz in football. How many football fans do we have? Okay, we have a few. We've got a few football fans. I'm just curious, any Steelers fans here? Okay, I'm the only one. Any Bears fans here? All right, all right. Uh, any other fan of any other team? All right. What, tell me, tell me, I want to know. The Patriots. The pa- Did I hear the Bulls? That would be basketball. Uh, the Patriots. Packers, I know, I know. Ryan's a Packers fan. And I think somewhere along the way, there might be a Vikings fan somewhere along the way. But in football, there is this play where the defense wants to try to trick the offensive line and the quarterback and make them think that they're going to cover the men who are going to go long. But instead, all of a sudden, they all get together and they swarm the quarterback. And they come in from every side, and there was no team that could do it like my Steelers of the 70s. I mean, they could just, you, you, you knew it was coming, but you couldn't stop it. And they would swarm in, and they would, they'd sack the quarterback and pull him down. That's the idea, that the enemy wants to do his best to so get you down and make you want to give up. I want to give you three things, three things that will help you to understand how the enemy wants to bring about a disarmament in your life, how he wants to disarm you, because we know today we are not ignorant of his schemes and his devices. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the first way that he seeks to take you out is through distraction. Distraction. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the, almost the entire book of Deuteronomy is essentially uh, Moses' farewell speech to the people. He knows that he can't pass over into the promised land. God has specifically told him he was not able to do that. Joshua was going to be about to lead the people and he, Moses was almost ready to hand off command to Joshua. And, but Moses is making a plea to the people. He is telling them a very important principle that you and I must remember. And it's one of the ways that the enemy does his best to try to get us to get weak and lay down and die and just sort of give up spiritually. And I want to encourage you today not to do that. The Bible says this, starting at verse 32, reading to verse 33. I'm reading from the NIV. It says this, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Notice that. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Here he says, walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper And prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Walk in all the ways of the Lord your God. For those of you who are wondering what those ways are, those ways are a straight path. And in fact, when you get into the New Testament, Jesus talks about it being a narrow path. And few there are that find it. In other words, not everybody's looking to get in on this narrow road. 
Not everybody is clamoring to get there. Why? Because the wide path is the fun path, right? The wide road is the road that leads to all kinds of partying, all kinds of, you know, things that feed your flesh, yourself. But we're not here to feed ourselves. We're here to serve Christ. If you have come to know Jesus Christ and you want to serve him, you understand that it's not about you, it's all about him. Reading from the New Living Translation, just listen to this out of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. Listen to what the world offers. The Bible says, for the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure. The lust for everything we see and pride in our possessions. These are not, notice this, from the Father. Let me say that again. These are not from the Father. All the feeding of self, the feeding of the flesh, the pride of life and what you possess and what you own and what you have, not from the Father. They are from this evil world. You see, a distraction is nothing more than the devil trying to get you to take your eyes off Christ. It is nothing more than him using some thing, some circumstance, some temptation, some sin in your life, some easily besetting sin to get you to take your eyes off Jesus. And I would dare say that throughout this past year, the enemy has been successful in doing this in some of your lives. There has been distractions that have come your way and you have not been able to fend him off simply because you haven't recognized it for what it really is. It is a distraction. He'll throw anything and everything your way to try to distract you from serving Jesus Christ. Maybe it is. Well, you know you know that we're, we're not in the best of economies right now. Things are tough. Things are really hard. So maybe it is your boss came to you and said, look, you can work some extra time. We'll pay you some overtime. Great, I need the extra money. When? Well, you know, Sunday morning would be good. Ooh, church, money, church, money, money. And all of a sudden you become distracted. I realize from time to time there are, there are times that are extreme. There are difficult circumstances in your life. But brothers and sisters, I am here to let you know the enemy will use whatever he possibly can to distract you from progressing forward in Jesus Christ. He wants you to give your all to him and to serve him with all of your heart. And the command came from Moses to the people of Israel. He said, listen, do not turn to the right or to the left. Don't be distracted by anything. Don't allow the enemy to come along and say, why don't you go ahead and go over here and start doing your own thing? Live for yourself. Because you know what? Let's face it. You're a Christian. You should be having it better than what you have it. And you know what? Times are tough. Why don't you just do your own thing? God certainly isn't helping you out and taking care of you. Ah, uh, listen, we can listen to that lie and we can become distracted. 
But brothers and sisters, can I encourage you today in the Lord that there is nothing in the world that will ever satisfy the depths of your soul that will never ever satisfy the emptiness on the inside like Jesus can. There is nobody in the world who has ever died for your sin. There isn't anybody out there that you can hook up with who will be the closest friend that you will ever have. But the Bible says there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I believe that in Proverbs it is prophesying about Jesus Christ that he will always be there. What did he tell us? disciples I'll never leave you I'll never forsake you he said I'm not going to leave you as orphans I've got to go to prepare a place for you I'm going to leave this world but I'm not going to leave you as orphans I'm going to send the spirit to you to let you know that I am with you at all times that club that you go to that friend that you hooked up with that person you decided to just bunk with i got to tell you, they wouldn't walk across the street if they saw you bleeding and dying. They wouldn't help you out, but let me tell you, Jesus has done great and wonderful things for you. He died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. We don't have to feed ourselves with what the world offers up. The world offers nothing. Jesus offers eternal life. There are two men who in the scriptures stand as examples of lives distracted by the enemy. You know, the amazing thing about these two men is they had amazing potential. Uh, You look at individuals and we we understand that there are people in life, you might see a young person coming along and maybe they're into sports and a coach will look at them and say, great potential, hope they don't get injured. Maybe on the job you have some young person coming out of college and they walk in and you know, they, you know they're a little nervous, but you look at them, they got talent. They got ability. They, they, they have potential. Maybe you see individuals that you know they are just, they, they've got great, great potential to do great and mighty things in life. These two men were like that, and they had great potential to do great things for the Lord. In fact, God placed his hand on them for a purpose. He placed his hand on them so that they could do something great for him. God wanted to use them as God wants to use every individual in this place today. He had a plan for their lives. He desired to see them do great and mighty things. And yet somehow along the way, they became distracted. The first one is Samson. You can read Samson's story It spans a few chapters in the book of Judges starting right around chapter 13, I believe it is. Going through into Judges 17. And Samson was one of those individuals that was unique. He was to be a judge in Israel. He was to be a deliverer. He wasn't going to be the guy who would amass a great army to come against those who were oppressing the Israelites. You remember the book of Judges is it shows a great cycle. The cycle starts this way, that the people sought the Lord. God blessed them. God sent them a deliverer. And after that deliverer died, the people, the Bible says, they, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so God sent those who would judge them. He sent other nations to oppress them. And then they would call upon the Lord again and God would raise up another deliverer and that deliverer would rescue them and they'd have a relative time of peace and they would go right back. It was like a vicious cycle. Samson was to be one of those judges, but he was going to be the kind who would act alone. 
He was one who the, the, the angel promised to his parents. He said, listen, don't do this. Don't cut his hair. Don't let him drink any wine or strong drink. He is to be a Nazarite. He is to hold this vow all through his life. Do not allow him to cut his hair. Why? Because in his hair was there great strength? No, he was out of obedience to the Lord. That is where his strength would come from. But nonetheless, Samson would, would do these amazing feats and have these amazing things take place where he would defeat uh, uh, the Philistines and defeat those who were coming against Israel and had oppressed them. Single-handedly, he would take out entire swarms and, uh, of, of men who had come against the land. But as great as Samson was, he got distracted. All of a sudden, he saw this Philistine girl, and he thought to himself, got to have her. She's going to be mine. Wasn't it the Philistines who were oppressing the Israelites? What was he doing with a Philistine woman? He shouldn't have been down there. And we remember the story, at least I hope you do. If you don't, you can get there and read it. We don't have time to read it. But he gets down there to the Philistines, and, and they're, they're about to ready. They have this wedding, and... And, and this uh, a long seven-day, week-long event, and, and Samson's ready to take his bride, and all of a sudden they trick him. They don't want Samson down there. They don't want him to be part of the community. They didn't want him. And so they trick him. And in the end, they end up killing his wife. Samson gets so angry, he destroys some of their crops and their fields. He moves on. And then the Bible says a little bit later on that he sees a prostitute by the name of Delilah also in a Philistine city. Samson got distracted. Samson had such great potential for God. He had so much potential to do even more than he did, brothers and sisters. And in all that he did, yes, it was great, but you wonder sometimes what could have happened if Samson had really, really given his all to the Lord and really said, Lord, I'm going to fulfill my vow to you. I, I owe my flesh nothing. I'm going to do it God's way and not my way. Makes you wonder what would have really happened. Samson got distracted to the point where Delilah tricks him. Samson, what's the source of your strength? And goes through this little game. And finally, he breaks and says, if you cut my hair off, I'll be like any other man. And you know what the sad thing about Samson was? Is when Samson's hair got cut off and Delilah woke him up as the, the Philistines were coming in to take him away, he said these words. He said, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to shake myself as before. And I'm going to take care of these guys. But he realized that as soon as he began to try to break the ropes that bound him, he had no strength anymore. It's an amazing thing. He thought he was still okay. And that is one of the great dangers that you and I face, that we go on and we just live our lives to please our flesh and please ourselves, and we become distracted by the things of the world and the things of the flesh, and we think that because we walk into a church on a Sunday morning that God is absolutely impressed, that we can stand up, raise our hands with the best of them, and say, I am going to be like I was before. But you don't realize, and the Bible says, he didn't realize that the power had left him. 
And there are so many who walk into church and they don't realize the power of God has left their lives because they have been so distracted by the things of the world, they've just let themselves go. Proverbs 4 and verse 27 says, Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. There is another man in the Old Testament by the name of Saul. We remember King Saul because he preceded David. He tried to kill David on many occasions. But before he got to that point, before he got to the point where, you know, Saul was this seemingly as you, like this dark figure in Scripture. When you read about him, you look at him, you realize this, this guy's got some serious, serious problems. He's this individual who just, he's so, you know, there's no other word for it, vexed in his spirit, just in such great turmoil in his spirit. And, and you, you read about him, you think, oh, that's all we know about Saul. But if you read earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, probably right around 1 Samuel 12, 13, you begin to read about what Saul can do and, and what it was that, that's who it was that Saul really was. The Bible talks about him that he stood taller than anybody else. You know, he, was, he would be the center for the basketball team from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he was just, he was taller than everybody else. And he, he stood head and shoulders, the Bible says, above everyone in his tribe. And when it came time to crown him king, when God said, I picked Saul to be the king, and it came time to crown him king, Samuel said, where is he? Where did he go? We can't find him. He said, go find this guy. He said, well, you know what? We think he's hiding. I mean, this guy was so humble. He was afraid. He was afraid to become king. He wasn't sure that he was going to be up to the task. He went and he hid himself. He knew he was going to be crowned king, and he goes and hides. He was a humble man. He was so humble. And yet somewhere along the way, he became distracted. His ego got in the way. All of a sudden, there was this great pride about, you know, I'm king, and I can do whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. And he did whatever he wanted, but not without consequences. Samuel one day showed up and he expected, you know, that he was, he was to, Saul was to carry out the command of God and just completely wipe out the Amalekites. He said, don't even bring home their sheep or their oxen, nothing. Don't want it. Don't need it. Don't bring it home. Judgment is coming upon this nation. You have to carry it out. All of a sudden, Samuel shows up, and all of a sudden, he hears this, you know, that, you know, all this bleeding of sheep. Samuel said, what in the world is going on? What's happening here? Oh, you know, I just thought, you know, that, uh, you know, we should use the sheep for sacrifice. Sacrifice my eye. I really don't think that's what he was thinking. More sheep, more cattle, more money. It feeds the economy, folks. Saul wanted it for himself. And Saul put himself above the command of God. Anytime you put yourself above this word and what it says in this word, you are placing yourself in a position of God. And that is a position of pride. And ego got the kingdom ripped from Saul. He had great potential. But he became distracted. His sense of, of self-worth was absolutely unrealistic and it robbed him of the true purpose for which God had called him. Something else that the enemy will use to get us to give up 
keep us from the presence of God is this, discouragement. Not only distraction, but discouragement. And it's often as a result of rough roads in life. Listen to this. In fact, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, to Numbers. If you're in the book of Deuteronomy, just go back a book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So go back, head left, and go to Numbers 21 and verse 4. Discouragement comes often as a result of rough roads. Listen to what the Bible says. This is, the book of Numbers is counting or recounting the travels of the people of Israel as they wandered in the desert. Wandered throughout this desert. It took them 40 years to get, what it, what, uh, to, get to a place that should have literally taken them 10 days. It took them 40 years. But here's what happened. The Bible says they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient. If you have a King James Bible, the word is here discouraged. Translated discouraged. Impatience also plays into discouragement. The Bible says the people grew impatient on the way. There are difficult times that come in your life and in my life and we grow impatient and impatience generally leads to discouragement. That discouragement can bring us so down to the point where we don't call upon God, we accuse God. Remember the people of Israel were really good at that. When they were wandering in the desert, there was, you know, they had the desert to contend with. It was hot, it was arid. There was a lack of water. There was a lack of food. All of those things were they had to deal with on a regular basis. God said, all right, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to rain down manna from heaven. I want you throughout the week on six days of the week. I want you five days of the week. Collect only what you need for that day. On the sixth day, collect what you need for the sixth day and then also for the Sabbath. And I want you to have it. It'll last through the weekend. Don't collect more than you need. It's going to rot. It's going to spoil God said, I'm going to rain down that manna, and he did. Then the people of Israel said, we're tired of this manna, this thing that literally the word translated means, what is it? <laughs> that's, that's the literal translation of the word manna. What is it? We're tired of this, what is it? So, Lord, we want meat. We want meat. All of a sudden, quail just start falling out of the sky. God brought quail to them. You want meat? I'll give you meat. They, get, they ate so much meat, they got sick. Too much meat. Give us back the manna. You know, we want all that. They dealt with rough road after rough road. They came to places where there was no water. They complained against God. They accused God. They accused Moses. What did you do? Bring us out here in the desert just to die? I mean, did you bring us out of Egypt? Yes, we were slaves there, but at least we ate food. We're out here in the desert. We had water. Now we have none. What's going on here? And all of these rough roads that they hit from time to time brought an impatience and a discouragement in their heart and in their spirits. And God, brothers and sisters, as much as we might pray for it to happen, does not remove us from the rough roads. As much as you want them to. Oh, come on, God, I just want to, you know, let's just coast into heaven, shall we? Nice, smooth hill. 
I used to love it as a kid when they would resurface the roads in my little country town and they'd put this new pavement on and I'd get my bike out on these country roads that had that fresh, smooth pavement. No more of the bumpiness. You just get out there. We had hills there. We don't have hills here. Don't even, I can't remember what a hill looks like. But, you know, we, this, the flatlands, but there we had hills. We get up on the top of that hill. We get on the bike and shoo, just down the hill, you go over this smooth ride. It felt so good. And most of us think that's how our Christianity ought to be. Jesus promised his disciples, he said, in this life, you're going to have afflictions. You're going to have troubles. You're going to have difficulties. You need to know that it's going to happen. I'm not going to pray that you would be removed out of the world, but that you would have strength in the world, that the, the Spirit would keep you, that He would help you and He would strengthen you in everything that you face. The rough roads, brothers and sisters, are going to happen. How are we going to react to it? Are we going to get discouraged? Are we going to get impatient? You see, the rough roads bring about discouragement. The enemy will use discouragement to get you to stay home from church. He'll use discouragement to keep you from reading the Bible. He'll use discouragement to keep you from prayer. He'll use discouragement and say, you know what? Why are you bothering to pray? God isn't fixing it. Well, since when did we get a theology that said God's Mr. Fix It? Somewhere along the way, we have to recognize that God is sovereign and he will allow certain things to take place in our lives to help us and to keep us keeping on in him and looking forward and looking to him at all times and trusting him. It's like somebody once said, how are you going to know you have faith until you're in a good fight? How are you going to know that you can make it unless you're in a situation where you have to make it? It's not, you can't, you know, you can't, Fight the fact that there are going to be rough roads. But what is your reaction? Not only that, the enemy will use evil influences to discourage you. Over in Numbers chapter 32, go to Numbers 32 and verse 9. Numbers 32 and verse 9. The Bible says this. After they went up, to the valley of Eshkol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord had given them. What's that talking about? It's talking about when God told Moses, I want you to send 12 spies into the land of Canaan, the, the promised land. I want them to spy out the land and bring back a report. So Moses sent them along and there were 10 spies who went over there and they said, man, they got grapes the size of your head. They're just so wonderful, so great. The land, as the Bible states, it was flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it had all the sustenance that they needed to survive, to live. Everything that they needed. But, they said, there are giants in the land. There are people everywhere that are bigger than us. Giants, they're there. We can't take them. We can't go in there. You remember the report that Caleb and Joshua gave? Oh, yes, we can. You've got to believe. You've got to trust in the Lord. The Lord will be with us. We absolutely can go up and take the land. But the 10, listen to what the Bible says. And here's the evil influence. Let me just read it again. The last part of that verse says, They discouraged the Israelites 
from entering the land, get this, the Lord had given them. If God has given you something, don't let anybody discourage you from it. Don't let anybody discourage you. If he has given you salvation, don't let the enemy come along and so discourage you that you give up and walk away. Don't let the enemy come along and say, no, no, no. You know what? You, you've got it going so bad that clearly God is not with you and he doesn't care for you anymore. So why don't you just give up? There were evil influences that came along. These ten voices so discouraged the people that nobody thought except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb that it could happen. Nobody thought it. They said, we're, you know, we're going to die here in the wilderness. Once again, that's that song, going to die here in the wilderness. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the pain. I mean, you know, they're, they're just ready to lay down and die. The discouragement is so thick that they cannot seem to make it out. And some of you have been so discouraged over the last year that you have not been able to crawl your way out today. Can I just clue you in today and let you know with all the love in my heart, it is a distraction from the enemy. It is a discouragement from the enemy. He wants to take you out of the game. He wants you to not allow his spirit to help you through those troublesome times. The devil does his best through discouragement. There is one final way that he tries to defeat us and bring us down, and it is through doubt. Turn over in your Bibles in the New Testament to the book of James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And we're going to read at verses 6 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. The Bible says this. But when he asks, that is anyone, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We don't have an ocean here, but we have a lake. And if any of you have been by Lake Michigan on a really, really stormy day or a windy day, you know that that lake can get pretty treacherous and and the waves can just crash in as if it were the ocean. You look and you realize the waves, it's, you know, a wave, you watch it and you can't follow it. You know, it's up one minute and down the next. And this is essentially what James is likening an individual who doubts to. Up one minute, down the next. And he says this, that that man, the Bible lets us know this, that doubt disables the power of prayer. How do we know this? Look at verse 6 again. The Bible says, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Then into verse 7, That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he doubted. 
When you approach God, you cannot approach God with the idea that, Lord, I, I think you might do it, but I don't think you will. It sounds, sounds like it's opposites. Well, that's what doubt does. Literally, doubt is division. Doubt is a division in your heart and in your mind. I think maybe, but I think not. You're, you're going both ways on this whole thing. So he says, what happens is, you can come to God and you can begin to ask, but in your heart, if you're doubting, don't think that you're going to receive anything from God. God always responds to one thing. What is it? Faith. He always responds to faith. I realize that sounds so simplistic, but it is. That's how scripture puts it. He doesn't respond to any outward expression of what you do and how you act. He responds to faith in your heart. That faith then ought to have an outflow in, in showing that you're living for the Lord. But he responds to faith. When you come to the Lord, we have to believe that God is able to do what we're asking. You see, a lot of times, I, I, I sometimes think that prayer is our you know, coming to God and thinking somehow you know, we're going to figure it all out on our own. That somehow it's just sort of talking out loud and hopefully we'll find a solution as we continue to talk. That's not the way prayer goes. Prayer is trust in the Lord. It is a dependence on the Lord. And when you come to him, you've got to believe in his power, not your own power. Doubt disables the power of prayer. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, who go after him. He is a rewarder, brothers and sisters. He is somebody who will be there to help you and to strengthen you, but you cannot doubt. Doubt, not only does it disable the power of prayer, it ties the hands of God. Write this down. I'm just going to read it to you. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. The Bible says this. He could not do, that is Jesus, any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Verse 6 says, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. If there is anything that God is amazed at, it's why you don't believe in him. It's why you don't trust him. It's why you doubt his ability. If there is anything that you could say God is amazed at, if God could be amazed, it is this, lack of faith. Because God knows who he is. He knows his great power. He knows his ability. Jesus knew what he was capable of. And also at this time, not only did Jesus know, the word was spreading about the power that Jesus had. And what he was capable of doing and the lives he was capable of changing. And brothers and sisters, in the middle of all of that, the Bible says he couldn't do many miracles there. Why? Because they had a lack of faith. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe in him. And doubt will bring you down every time. The enemy will disarm you through doubt if you are not careful. And I want to encourage you to trust in the Lord. Listen to James chapter 1 if you're still there, verse 7. It says, That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Is it because God is not willing to give it? No, absolutely not. God is always willing to bless and to give, but when we doubt, 
we're not utilizing the one provision that he has given to us to receive from him. And that one provision is faith. Doubt, very simply stated again, is division. You're divided in your heart, in your mind, that you see two opposite roads as being options. There is only one option when you come to God, and that option God places in front of you is simply, go my way. I will take care of you. I will help you. I'll watch over you. I'll strengthen you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be with you at all times. His is the only way. It's the only way. All of these distraction and discouragement and doubt lead to one place, defeat. Say, but please, pastor, don't leave us there. Don't leave us in defeat. No, I'm not going to. I want to close with this. So how do we defeat what the enemy wants to try to do in bringing defeat to our lives? How do we put it back? How do we push back? How do we say, no, we're not going to give in. We're not, we're not going to allow doubt to rule in our hearts. We're not going to allow discouragement. We're not going to allow all of these things. We're not going to allow that to happen. What do we need to do? First, we need to focus. Focus on what or who? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. you got to keep looking at him. Keep your eyes on him. Focus on him. Don't focus on your trouble. Some of you walked in weighed down by the troubles and the weights of this world and the weight of life, and there are difficult things that are going on in your life. You've got to turn your eyes to him. It's like that chorus we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You've got to look at him. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on him. Focus on the Lord and what he has done for you. Not only that, you've got to fight. You've got to have an attitude that says, I'm not going to give in to the flesh. I'm not going to give in to the world. I'm not going to give in to doubt or discouragement. I won't give in to that. Why? How can we do that? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, I mentioned this in the beginning. The Bible says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, which we're not ignorant of, by the way. We know about them. We know what's going to happen. So the Bible says, put on the full armor of God. You want to know about that? Go to Ephesians 6. But we've got to fight. Don't give, don't give in. Don't lay down. I remember many, many years ago being in the middle of a championship season in basketball, and our coach would walk into the locker room in the middle of the game, and we'd be down by a few points. And he'd walk in. He was an ex-Marine, fought in the Korean War. And so, you know, his language wasn't exactly, you know, sweet. And, man, this guy knew how to yell. He could, he, I mean, he could, he could cuss the wallpaper off a wall. He was just, I mean, he was just, he was just as mean as they come. But he'd walk in and he'd yell at us and he'd say, you don't want it bad enough. You don't want it bad enough. Hey, I remember a few times him calling us gutless wonders. <laughs> Those are some of the words that came out of his mouth you, that were nice and repeatable. But you, you don't want it bad enough, he'd say. And there are times in our lives where I sometimes, how badly we want it. Do we want to fight? 
Do we want to, to fight the enemy? No, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. Look, folks, we're not fighting people in the world and, and people who are sinful. That's, that's not what we're called to do. We are called to fight the forces of wickedness that are in heavenly places, that are in high places. The enemy is the prince of the power of the air. He is our enemy, and he is the one that we have to fight. But don't lay down and die. Have a fighting attitude. And the final thing that we need is faith. James chapter 1 and verse 6, again it says, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. This is not a feeling. It's an action. Faith takes action. You've got to trust and you've got to believe, but it's not something that happens in your head or in your heart. If you're going to have faith and you're going to believe that God is on your side and you've got the power to defeat the enemy and you've got the power to overcome, then you need to take action. You stay in the book. You stay in the word of God. You read the Bible. You get it into your spirit. Get it into your heart and then pray like never before. You say, I'm so discouraged. I don't even know what to pray. That's all right. Paul tells us in Romans that when you don't know how to pray, the spirit will pray through you with groanings that can't be uttered. Literally a groan. Are you kidding me? Seriously? Yes, absolutely. The Spirit knows what weighs upon your heart that you can't even put into your first language, that you can't even put into words whatever language you have the best command of. I want you to know that the Spirit of God knows. And when you come to Him, you are coming to Him in faith, believing. Close with this story. Years ago, when I first arrived at Bible College in East Providence, Rhode Island, we were on a small campus, a really small campus that the student body had outgrown. It had been there. My, my parents had attended there uh, back in the 50s, 40, late 40s and, and early 50s. My two brothers had attended there as well in the 70s and 80s, and I arrived in the, the late 80s, in 85, and to be a student, and we had outgrown the campus and there was a new president coming in uh, by the name of Dr. Benjamin Crandall, who has been at this church a number of years ago, back when we were on Irving Park Road. He, is, he and his wife were just at that point taking uh, charge of the campus as the new president. And the, the Barrington College campus came up for sale. It was where Barrington College was and, and had been for a number of beautiful, spacious campus in Barrington, Rhode Island. And he said, we've got to buy that. We've got to buy it. But Zion, as it was, had no money. No money at all. And this was a multi-million dollar campus. And they wanted to purchase this campus to expand and to grow the student body and have space and dormitories for everybody. And, and they approached the, you know, the, the seller and said, listen, we want to buy the campus. And the seller's attorney looked at them and said, but, you know, Zion has no money. How are you going to do this? How are you going to pull it off? And Dr. Crandall said, We're, we'll come up with the money. The Lord will help us. We'll come up with the money. He said, well, that's great that the Lord will help you, but, you know, the banks don't exactly take, you know, the Lord's whatever it is that you think he's going to do for you. They take money. He says, that's all right. We'll, we'll buy it. And at one point, it got to the, down to the final part of it, and the attorneys all met together. They met together, brought the leadership of Zion in, brought Dr. Crandall in, and literally almost berated him and said, you cannot buy this campus. You have no money. You have no business even being here. We will not sell this campus to Zion. Sorry. 
And he said, I remember him telling the story. He said, when I walked out of that meeting, he said, I was so low. And he said, my faith was microscopic. But can I tell you, all God needs is microscopic faith to work with. Because in October of 1985, we packed everything up from East Providence and we moved to the Barrington College campus and spent the next I, They have now just recently moved up into Massachusetts. Somebody literally gave them a campus, now have two campuses. They still use the Barrington campus for some things. I know they've been trying to sell it, get rid of it, but they still utilize it somewhat. The, the Lord took care of it. Brothers and sisters, if your faith will not waver, the enemy cannot disarm you. If you will trust in the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, the enemy will not take you down and take you out. God will be in control if you simply let him and say, Lord, I'm going to trust in you. I will not be defeated. I won't go down. I won't be discouraged. I won't allow the enemy to have his way. Can we bow our heads? Just close our eyes in the closing moments of this meeting.